Open your Bibles, if you would. Letter of St. Paul to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2. I know we spent a very good deal of time in the Ephesian letter just a few months ago, but here in Advent we find a really good reason to come back to it. Of course, the topic this morning, second Sunday of Advent, is peace. Last week we looked at hope, and peace, like the word hope, is such a such an enormous word. Like, how do you, you know, how do you get your arms around it? What exactly can you say? Um, it means so many things to so many people, and it, it means something to all of us. Um, but it's our focus this morning. The angelic pronouncement was peace on earth. And the question that I'm left with as I just read it and think about it is how does this fit in? What do we really say about peace during this Christmas season that will affect how we experience Christmas, how it affects our walk? And the answer, because I, I was working on this for the last couple of weeks, wonder, what am I going to say about this? And the answer came actually Thursday in a conversation I was having with somebody else. And one of the things that I love is when you're thinking about something and, and really, you know, thinking about it and trying to come up with an answer. And the answer comes when you're talking about something else completely. I love it when that happens. And I, I was talking with one of the uh, faculty members at the Bible College, and the question was about righteousness. And the question that, that I was asked was, you know, at the essence of righteousness, what is it? Because in some passages of Scripture, righteousness is a state of being. God is righteous. We are called to be righteous. Um, in some places, it's conduct, righteous behavior. So like, is it, you know, chicken egg kind of thing, which comes first? How is it, we're declared righteous? How does all that work? And as, as the question was being asked, and I, I was processing all of it, the answer that I just basically blurted out, I hadn't, hadn't thought about it, um, and when you, know, you say something like that, and you go, wow, did I say that? Uh, it was like righteousness is a person. Righteousness is a person. Christ is righteousness. You want to know about righteousness. If any questions about righteousness, look at the character of Christ. You want to know what it is to be righteous? Look at the character of Christ. You want to know what righteous behavior looks like? Look at the behavior of Christ. And, of course, the biblical text tells us he is our righteousness. So we had a great conversation about that, and the day went on, and week went on, and I was thinking about that, actually not thinking about that, uh, but reading up passages about peace and going through scripture and looking at different passages, and that's when it hit me. Peace is a person. Peace is Jesus. You want to know what peace looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know where peace comes from? Look at Jesus. The most important thing we can say about peace is that peace is Jesus. He is our peace. He himself is peace. Paul writes this in the Ephesian letter, chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. 
Father, we know that in every season your word speaks truth to us. And in this season of celebration, celebration um, of the birth of your son, the incarnation of God in human flesh, Lord, there's a message of peace for us. And give us um, minds to hear it, absorb it, hearts to embrace it, hands and feet to put it into action. In Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever else may be said about peace, Jesus is peace. Peace has a name. It's Jesus. And in working that out and thinking about that, I'd like to just touch on three things this morning. First, just to begin with some observations about the word peace as it occurs in the Old Testament and New, how it's used in Scripture, what it means. And then look at some detail at that passage in Ephesians. I know we looked at it just a few months ago, but look, to look at it again specifically with regards to Jesus being our peace. And then finally bringing that to our celebration of Christmas and seeing what that works. So to begin with, a few observations about peace. The word peace, it's a huge word. Huge word. Occurring literally hundreds of times in the Old Testament, shalom. And occurring more than a hundred times in the New Testament. And of course, it, you know, we think peace, our first thought is, well, the absence of hostility, and that's part of it, but that's really a very, very small part of it. It means so much more, especially the Old Testament. Shalom is such a huge embracing word. It means health. If you're not in good health, it's hard to be at peace. It means prosperity. If things are really, really bad in the, in the finances, it's, it's, it's a challenge to be at peace. It means security. You're afraid, your home being invaded, it's not very peaceful, comfort. Just the overall sense of well-being, it's, if it's the absence of anything, it's the absence of anything that would cause anxiety. That tells you how desperately we need it in our society, right? We are an anxious, anxious culture. Peace, peace is not just the absence of anxiety today, I mean, it's one thing to be, have everything in order today, and when that happens, where do your thoughts immediately go to? Tomorrow. Yeah. Peace is not just the absence of anxiety today or the cause for anxiety today. It's even looking downstream. I, I, I'm just, I'm in good shape. I, I had a fascinating experience. This, this just, it was just this morning, yesterday evening, just really dealing with a lot of really crazy things and really getting anxious and really getting frustrated. And um, I stopped for, for a cup of coffee. And, and I'm not much for, like, you know, wordy coffee cups. Coffee cups are there to hold coffee, right? <laughs> I don't need my coffee cup to preach at me. And so usually I'm simply not aware of what's written. I pick them because of the amount they hold and, and the comfort of the handle. That's important, you know. And so I have my I've, I've used this coffee cup like a hundred times. And I'm sitting there and I'm dealing with all this anxiety and stress. And, and um, I pour my cup, as I lift it up, this is one of those cups that's got lots of, you know, preachy stuff on it, you know. And they're right inside the lip opposite me, right? I couldn't say anything else because the cup was full, right? It said, live well. And I went, wow, that's pretty simple. I can work on that. And it was amazing. Anxiety level came down, right? But that, what, that meant, what that meant was, you know, realistically, John, look at the big picture. You're doing pretty well, right? Just relax a little bit. 
It's that absence of anxiety that we're, that we're talking about. That is what peace in its fullest meaning does, right? What I would conclude, though, because one of the things that, that happens if you go through Scripture like this, thank God for the Internet, it lets us do some really good study really fast. If you go through the Internet and you just pull up, you know, on like Blue Letter Bible or Bible Gateway and just pull up the word peace, what's really cool to do is do that and look at the words that are attached to it. It's very informative. It's very informative. Um, for example, you see words like make, make peace, okay? Peace is something to be made, right? Seek peace. Speak peace. Even give peace. Three times in the Old Testament, it speaks of God giving the people peace. It was a gift. It's Leviticus 26, 1 Chronicles 22, and Haggai 2.9, if you want to look that up, right? But the most common words, or the words most commonly associated with peace, especially in the Old Testament, are the words offering and sacrifice. Literally hundreds of times. And I didn't actually add them up, but I would bet, especially in the Old Testament, if you add up all the times peace is spoken of in combination with sacrifice or offering, it outnumbers all the other occurrences pretty hard to disassociate the word peace from sacrifice, from offering, and that tells us a lot about the direction we need to be going in our thinking. But what it really made clear to me, make peace, speak peace, give peace, follow in the way of peace, peace offerings, peace sacrifices, that peace is not the normative condition of the human experience. Peace is not normative, especially when we look at it in its wholest, most expansive meaning, which is weird, because if you ask people what they want in life, what's one of the first things everybody says? Well, I want peace, and I want peace, and I want peace. Now, if you've been involved in conflict resolution at all, you know that one of the ways you get people together is get them in the same place, ask them what they want, and find the one thing everybody can agree they want, right? And you, and you start from there. So everybody wants peace, but we don't get it. I would suggest, just this is my opinion, you're free to you know, disagree, that one of the big reasons we don't have it, even though everybody wants it, is that for the vast majority of us, despite what we might say, it really isn't number one on the list. Right? I want peace, but I, I got my, my goodies above that, right? And if I get my goodies then I'm at peace. And the problem, of course, is my pursuit of my goodies is likely to conflict with your pursuit of the goodies you want, and there goes peace right out the window. It, it's not number one on our list, even though we want it. It's not number one. And people, I mean, Jesus spoke to that. When he was standing outside of Jerusalem, he wept, and he said, if you'd only known the things that made for peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. That's why he wept. Jerusalem lost their peace because they weren't sure where to find it. In fact, it was standing in front of them. And the reason Jesus represents peace is he was the one who finally set aside everything else and put the restoration of peace at number one. That's the first observation I would make. For Jesus, peace was the primary driving force. Otherwise, we find ourselves in conflict. Even though it's all we, it's what we all want, it's so elusive 
until Jesus comes and then the incarnation. Let's look at what Paul says specifically. He begins by saying this again, Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for he himself is our peace. He himself, he's emphatic. It is the person of Jesus. It is the very character of Jesus himself that speaks peace. And he says, literally, he is the peace of us. The English equivalent is our peace. But he is literally the peace of us. Now, if you've been with us long, you know that what that word the means in the language of the New Testament. It's extremely significant. First of all, it means completeness. Jesus could only be the peace if he's all peace. There's nothing of peace lacking in his person. He is complete peace. And he is exclusive in that. If he is the peace, then nobody else is peace. It's the peace found in Christ is all-encompassing. It is absolutely exclusive. It is perfect. Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace. There is no sense in any way that the peace found in Christ is anything less than perfect, whole, absolute, and lasting. It's not just peace for today. It's lasting peace. We can say he is our peace. Because he made peace. Paul goes on to say, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. Peace means the absence of division. Now there's only two divisions in human experience that are really serious divisions. That is the division between God and man, the separation between ourselves and Christ, and the separation between Jew and Gentile. And the reason I say those are the only two significant differences are those are the only two that are completely insurmountable by any human effort. No human effort can ever heal that division. Any other division between us, whether it's race-based or gender-based or income, any other division in the human experience except the separation of God from man and Jew from Gentile can be overcome by human effort. And the reason that's so is it's only there because we put it there. The only reason we have racial divisions is because we've made it that way. The only reason we allow income to stratify our society is because we've chosen that. We've made it that way. List every division you want in the human experience except those two. They're man-made and man can overcome them. But the separation between man and God, we cannot overcome. Because it is absolute apart from the work of Christ. And the separation from Jew and Gentile is absolute. By the, it, it cannot be overcome by the work of man. It can only be overcome by the work of God. So Christ came and overcame those two obstacles that we could not overcome. He made both groups into one. He overcame the most essential division. And the thoroughness by which he removed the causes of division and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall is absolute. Two key words. Paul uses two key words to describe the thoroughness by which Jesus abolished those two distinctions. The first word he used, broke down, is the word leo. And leo is a really, really old word. It's a word with both positive and negative implications. It literally means to completely release, let things completely come apart. It's used in the New Testament, for example, to describe the releasing of a slave. Anytime someone is released 
from bondage. It's as if those chains were literally destroyed. It's a word that, in, in, in the mind's eye, just imagine something exploding, right? Fascinating, uh, as far back as the 5th century B.C., people knew that stuff was made of little stuff. The Greeks called the little stuff atoms. And they understood that stuff only existed because something was holding those atoms together. And that if something could release those atoms, the stuff no longer exists. So for example, if you take a big tree and you burn it as thoroughly as you can burn it, what are you left with? Just a little pile of ashes, right? Well, where'd the rest of the tree go? It was loosed. The atoms that made up that tree were freed to go be something else. Gaseous vapor, you know, whatever they, wherever they are. That happens because they're loose. It means to completely dis You cannot go out and, as far as I know, and collect all the smoke and all the, you know, the gases, the carbon dioxide that was released by burning the tree and mix it up with the ashes and get the tree back. Doesn't work. It's gone. It's destroyed. That's the thoroughness, the same thoroughness by which Christ destroyed the division between man and God and the division between Jew and Gentile, Jews and the rest of the human race. That's the first word, to loose. The second word, means to, which is to abolish, means the same thing, essentially, to bring to absolutely nothing. Nothing is left. So by two different words, Paul described the totality which Jesus erased the barriers between man and God, Jew and Gentile. And he did this, Paul goes on to say, by sacrificing himself. He abolished it in his flesh. It was done through the cross. And in the, and in the process of doing that, he actively brought humanity together, first with God and then with one another. And all of this began, this entire process begins with the incarnation, with his birth. Everything up till then, everything up to the incarnation, all of the Old Testament is there for one purpose, to show us how desperately we need the incarnation. Paul said in the Galatian letter, it's a tutor to bring us to Christ. It's to demonstrate that at our best, even when God gave humanity a manner by which they could live in peace and harmony, they couldn't do it. It's not in us. The law is there. The whole of the Old Testament is there, first and foremost, to show us what God truly is like, what He truly requires, how desperately we fall short, therefore how absolutely we needed the Incarnation. Which brings us to Christmas. Something amazing happened in Luke chapter 2. It's just a few days after Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph bring the infant Jesus into the temple. They're going to offer the sacrifices that are appropriate. And in the Tempion, there's a character by the name of Simeon. He is described as being righteous and devout. He's described as looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit is upon him. It's quite the character. He sees Mary and Joseph. He approaches them and takes the infant Jesus in his arms. And then he says, then it says of him rather, first off, he blessed 
holding the infant Christ, this righteous, devout man, this man who had pursued God with the whole of his character, this man who had lived his life seeking the character of God. That's what devout means. This man who was sensitive to the Spirit of God, led by the Holy Spirit, comes into the temple, lifts the Christ child, and says, Thank you, Lord. I have lived my life for this moment. I have lived my life in a desperate understanding of humanity's need for you, and here's the solution, wrapped in cloth in my hands. It says he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, let your servant depart. I'm ready to go. I am ready to leave. My job here is done. I don't need anything more in this world because mine eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon said, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. Simeon saw in the infant Jesus what could only be accomplished in the God-man Jesus. Simeon proclaimed what God had already been doing. One of the things that always amazes me about, about, the, about the birth narrative, about Christmas, I love that scene when Herod finds out from the Magi that the star had appeared two years before. That tells us that, that God had been working out not just the grand scheme, but the intimate, intricate details of Jesus' birth for like a year and a half before Mary was even pregnant. God was moving all these things into place. And this star, up, and I don't know how long the wise men were trapped. They may, be, may have been on the road well before Jesus was born. Was he, Mary was even pregnant. God is bringing all these things together. God has prepared all these things for this moment. That fascinates me. Simeon proclaimed what God had already been doing, and now it's right in front of him. He had eyes to see what God was starting, Jesus isn't salvation laid there wrapped in swaddling cloth. I mean, he is salvation, but he hasn't worked salvation there. And he's got to live for 33 years, suffer and die at the hands of sinful men. That's when salvation, but Simeon sees it like it's a done deal, wrapped up in cloth right in front of him. See, our challenge in Christmas isn't just to look back at what has happened. That's really important because it lays the foundation before we can move forward. But to bring that into the present. How does the infant Christ in the manger work peace in my world? How does the infant Christ work peace in the lives of those around me? Um, it's, it's a challenge, at least for me. Because I can get my mind around the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? I, I can get my mind around that. Crucifixion, I, I got it. I'm a sinful man. Someone's got to die. It's Jesus. Okay, I'll take that deal. I can, I, can, I can get my mind around the empty grave. That's what I need. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm counting on. Sign me up. But... but the babe in the manger, I, I, to, to bring that into my experience, I, I'll be honest, I struggle with that a little bit, right? So I go back to Simeon's words. Righteous and devout. Lord, give me a lens that is righteous and devout. Help me to see with godly eyes. Like this man, Simeon was a man, so if he can do it, I can do it. All right, Lord, help me there. Um, Came in the spirit into the temple. Lord, help me be sensitive to the guiding of your spirit. I will not get this on myself. I think you, I think you can do it. 
And then it said, he took the child into his arms, and then everything changes. He blessed God. My eyes have seen your salvation. He saw what was just starting as complete, and he found peace. Let your servant depart in peace, right? So this is what, I've already started it. I started it this week. This is what I'm going to suggest for you. Um, actually, I'm going to do more than suggest it. We're going to try it this morning. Often, often on Sunday mornings, I suggest to you guys that you meditate on the things that we talked about on Sunday morning. This morning, and this may freak some of you out, give it a try. If you don't, you don't have to, give it a try. I'm just going to suggest something to you this morning. Just close your eyes. Imagine yourself in the stable or the cave, or wherever in your understanding of the Christmas narrative it happened. Imagine yourself there. Try to allow yourself to hear what you would have heard. Shuffling of the shepherd's feet. Sounds that barnyard animals make. Perhaps even the the crying or, or the, the, the sweet cooing of the infant Christ. Put yourself there. Let yourself sense, smell the air that would it, it inevitably have been in that animal environment. How even on a cold, dry night, the air still has that sense of breath and perspiration from the animals compacted into a small area. Even the, scent, even the smell. Put yourself in that moment. Let yourself be there. And then if you can, allow yourself to hear Mary's soft voice call your name. And as you turn to look at her, you see her arms outstretched holding the infant. And she says to you, you want to hold him? take him in your arms as Simeon did. Father, if we can do this and we ask your spirit's help in doing this, we know that the present moment that we are in will be touched by your peace. For to hold the infant Christ in our arms is to put all things in proper perspective and to see all other things rightly. Father, if we can but, by the help of your spirit and this wonderful thing, imagination you've given us, Father, if we can in that moment cradle your son in our arms, all of the worries and all of the anxieties, 
and all of the things that steal peace from us will fade away. And then it falls to us to share that with others. Let that be our Christmas gift to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.